The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you would, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn with me to Luke chapter 20, chapter 14, to verse 25. Children, you can make your way to Children's Church and time in the Word and prayer just to my left. They're there waiting on you, a great time together in the Word of God. The rest of you to Luke 14. If you're visiting here today, you'll need a Bible, and we've provided one, a few Bible that's there. Please feel free to use that. If you'll turn to page 874, you'll be right with us. There'll be a couple of other texts that we look at this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, this church would love to give you that one, along with a little Bible study guide that Cindy and I would have back there. And visitors, Cindy and I do look forward to greeting you at the back. Luke 14 this morning, though, uh, we finished verses 1 through 24 last week. Find ourselves now in verses 25 through 33. Now, great crowds, or great, literally in the text, multitudes, multitudes accompanied him, followed him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great, a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and his mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Take a look, if you would, at that opening verse. Now. In fact, I want you to put a couple of things in your mind. Now, multitudes are following him. All right, question. Now, folks, before I get there, let me just go ahead and say up front. This text at least for me in preparation. And for those who listen to it with intention and integrity, it's bone jarring. It is radical. It's got jagged edges. 
The tendency is to explain it away when the reality is very clearly Jesus. And this isn't even one of the apostles expounding. This is Jesus. He's saying something very profound, very pointed, very intentional. He's calling us to something. He's communicating something to us. And he does so after Luke 9 tells us. Where is Jesus? See that now? What's the now? Well, first of all, the now refers to back to Luke 9, where it says Jesus at that time set his face to Jerusalem and the cross. That's where he's headed. And what he does on the way is recorded from Luke 9 all the way to the time we see him on the cross as we get into the latter chapters of Luke. Now he's on the way. And as he's on the way, the now includes something else that we looked at last week. What was that now? That now was that he had a banquet that was given to him by a ruler of a Pharisee, by the ruler of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had kind of switched tactics. No longer did they debate. They had already handed them their lunch too many times. So now they're trying to catch him at something. They're constantly trying to catch him. And so they're at a banquet. And Jesus takes that moment at that banquet to embrace something he has started doing. And that is the teaching with parables. And he teaches at that banquet of that Pharisee three banquet parables. Now, he's doing something very pointed, and that's this. He is reaching back to Isaiah 25, in which the Messiah is prophesied, who will bring salvation with grace that is lavish. And what Isaiah does by the Spirit is describe that lavish grace as a banquet. We will later call it in Revelation 19, the banquet of the Lamb, the marriage supper. But here it's described as the, as the banquet of salvation. And so this banquet becomes the occasion for Jesus to teach three banquet parables, and each one is building on the other to make a point all three together. The first thing he does with the first banquet parable is he makes the point. Here's the point he makes. That's this. When the Lord of the banquet, who has given you the banquet of salvation, invites you and you get there, you don't use the banquet to promote yourself, but you promote the preeminence of the one who gave you the banquet. In other words, you don't try to manipulate the seating list. I want this right. I want the chair on the right. I want the chair on the No, no, no. He said, you don't do that. What you do, come in and take the last chair. Because the same Jesus who spread the banquet of salvation is the Jesus that puts you on the invitation list. And he also has the seating arrangements. You let him seat you. You just come in with humility, lifting him up to preeminence. Then he gives another one. He turns from those invited to those who would host a banquet by pointing out the glorious Lord of the banquet who gives the banquet of salvation. And this is what he says about the Lord who gives the banquet of salvation. The Lord of the banquet of salvation does not invite those whom he needs. He invites those who need him. 
the poor, the lame. Now, the reality is, spiritually, we're all qualified, don't we? The invitation list is not made up of those whom he needs, but those who need him. Then he gets to a third one. Every banquet's got two invitations. You've got the save the date invitation, and then you've got come on in and eat. When they get to come on in and eat, everybody started making excuses. And Jesus says, that's the way it is. They don't come to the table unless they are compelled. They won't get to the table, so go out and compel them. Go to the city, go to the highways, go to the byways, go beyond the city, go to the hedges, the borders of the city. Go beyond those. Go out and compel them to come in. And when you take those three together, this is what we walked away with last week. And that's this. God saves those who need him, even though they do not want him, by pursuing them with a compelling message, with a compelling, with compelling messengers, and with a compelling minister. What's the compelling message? The unique gospel of grace. There's nothing like it. All the religions of the world, they got the same message. It's what you got to do or give. What the gospel says, it's not what you do and give. What you do and give is not the answer. It's the problem. It's what Jesus has done and what God has done in the gift of his son and what his son gives for you. And this is the free gift of eternal salvation. It is a unique, compelling message. And then the messengers. So if you've come to the table, now you're an inviter. Now you go out with a lifestyle of evangelism. And a lifestyle of evangelism and discipleship. And when you go out to compel people to come in with the compelling message, you become a compelling messenger, not by your arrogance, but by the fact that you have humbled yourself to take the lead. There is nothing more compelling than to meet a Christian who comes with courage, conviction, compassion, and contrition. When all those things wrap up, They are people who have come with humility, yet boldness. That becomes compelling messengers. And then they get to the table to feast because they not only have a compelling message and a compelling messengers, but they have a compelling minister. (laughs) Remember last week, that ain't me. (laughs) I'm not the compelling minister. The compelling minister is the Holy Spirit who reaches into the heart gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And instead of manufacturing excuses, we can't wait to get to the table. Did you ever experience that? I remember my granddaddy and grandmother were going to take me to church every Sunday. So I did everything I could to come up with every possible excuse. I would show up for two weeks with no no pants that would be fit for church. So they'd go out and buy me one. But I did everything I could to have an excuse not to be at church. I get saved and I'm starting looking up, working with Cindy, who's preaching? Where? I mean, what are we having at our church? Okay, let's go. And then where's another good sermon? And what can we do? All of a sudden, the door's open. I'm there. Why? It's Listen, the preachers didn't change. The churches didn't change. I got changed. Who did the changing? Wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit. Now I got a hunger and a thirst for what I didn't want anything to do with. That's what the compelling minister does. So now he finishes those banquets. He leaves. Now 
a great multitude. Now, I don't know how many that is. I don't have a formal definition. All I know is a lot of people, likely in a mixed demographic, they're all following him. They're going down the road. Jesus is going closer to Jerusalem, and he sees this great multitude around uh, following him, coming after him. And he turns to them and says this, if anyone would come to me to follow me. And then he tells him the terms. And if you don't, notice what he says. You cannot be my disciples. He doesn't say you may not be. He says you cannot be. It's a statement of ability. You will not be a Christ follower unless you embrace the terms that are non-negotiable as a discipler. Have y'all ever wondered why? Have y'all ever wondered why in the church of Jesus Christ we will get professions of faith but few disciples who are regular in worship, regular in small groups, regular in Bible study? If you take the number on the roll that gave a profession of faith and you put the number in the small groups, my guess is there's going to be a pretty significant difference in almost church after church after church. But you'll notice Jesus never separates coming to him and following him. In fact, when he gives the invitation, what does he say? Come. That's evangelism. What's the next words out of his mouth? Follow me. That's discipleship. He doesn't put one up. Come, get salvation. And by the way, five or six years later, if you want to work in a little bit of discipleship, just kind of let me know. I'll work that out for you. Puts them both together. The writer right here, Luke, makes sure after he gives this glorious three parables on evangelism, he follows it up with the cost of discipleship. So you cannot miss. They are inseparably tied to each other. So what is he telling us in this text? Well, look at it with me this way. He's giving us two non-negotiable terms. Then he gives us two Clarifying questions. And then he gives us one focused summation. Look first at the two non-negotiable terms. You'll find it in the next verse. Great crowds accompanied him. He turned and said to them, to these crowds, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot, he doesn't have the ability to be my disciples unless he does this. Now, what is he saying? There's two things I have to be very careful. One is to make sure you understand it with clarity and therefore with context. But I don't want to overly, quote, water it down by putting it into context. Because this is bone jarring. Can you imagine you're walking along behind Jesus? He looks at all these multitudes and he turns around and says, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, 
You've got to hate your father. You've got to hate your mother. You've got to hate your brothers and your sisters and your own wife. And you've got to hate your own life. And if anyone comes after me, then he must bear his own cross. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Three times, he says, you cannot be my disciples. It is clearly mind-boggling. It is clearly jarring what he is saying. I can almost see the, you know, I can almost see the disciples. Pat, uh, Jesus, wait just a minute. This is not good for church growth. Jesus, you're, I mean, we got a big, we're on our way to Jerusalem, remember? Wouldn't it be great to get there with a multitude and you are sifting it out with these statements? But he says it three times. And he says it very pointedly, and he begins with two non-negotiable terms. Here's the first one. Unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sisters, your own wife, your children, your own life, you cannot be my disciples. Now, the Bible, the scripture never contradicts itself, right? Amen belongs there. Thank you. The scriptures cannot contradict themselves. But now we got a seemingly contradiction, don't we? Does the Bible tell you to love your neighbor? Would your mother and daddy qualify as neighbors? Does the Bible tell us to love one another? Does the Bible tell you to love your husband? Ladies, let me ask you again. Does the Bible tell you to love your wife? Heard a lot of ladies on that one, too. Does the Bible tell us to love our children? Obviously, it does. So do we have a contradiction here? Well, whenever you see what is a seeming contradiction, knowing there can't be a contradiction, then you always go to the simpler text to understand The more difficult text because it can't contradict. So let's go to one that's simpler. In fact, Jesus gives us two so we can understand exactly what he's saying here. And then we'll try to apply it by not taking the jagged edge off. So if you would take it, go with me, if you would, to uh, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. It was a very this very thing that we're studying. Jesus did two or three times. And one of the times that he speaks is in Matthew 10, and it's the same factors. Father, mother, husband, wife, life, things, everything is right in this case of discipleship. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 10, and slip down in chapter 10 to verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Oh, Harry, I thought it was a gospel of peace. That's right. When you come to Jesus, you have peace with God. You have the peace of God and you become a peacemaker for God. But we're in a broken world until Jesus comes back and gives us a new heavens and a new earth. Peace. In fact, the Bible says, do not listen when they say to you peace. There won't be peace. He says, when I come, if you come to me, enmity is going to be placed. Now, at that moment. When you come to Christ 
and your closest people in your family come against you because you've come to me, now you've got a decision. Them or me. Them or me. Because when you commit to me, this is not merely an additive into life. Oh, I bought a car, and by the way, I got a new tie, and I got Jesus. Now, when you come to me, this is a big deal. And the same people who will not come to me, unless the Holy Spirit changes them, will be against those who come to me. Now, will they be more important in your affection or me? Which one will be, which one will reign at that moment? So he then goes on to say, just to get clarity, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Why? Because you've come to Christ. That means when you come to Christ, you first leave everything and everyone and then Christ is the one that sends you back to them. You don't bring them with you. You come to him. He sends you back to them. When you come to him, unless God works in their life, they're going to be against you. So what do you do? You have already decided the supremacy of an unrivaled commitment to Christ. Whoever loves father or mother, here's your key, more than me is not worthy of me. You cannot follow Jesus if you love anyone, including a father and mother, more than me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me, remember what he said? You must bear your own cross. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. You renounce your own life. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Go with me to another passage. John chapter 12. John 12. When you get to John 12, slip back, uh, slip to this um, really interesting passage. And I'm just going to look at one verse out of it for the sake of time this morning. Look with me in John chapter 12 and slip down to verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So, in other words, you have to not simply hate your own life. You have to die to your life. That's why I love Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, that's a gift back. Because I died. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for me. My parents cut Christ. Discipleship, Christ sends me back to them different. Children, I don't come with my children. I come to Jesus. Jesus, when he disciples me, teaches me 
how to get back in the lives of my children and bring him to them. He is making it abundantly clear this radical commitment to follow him is non-negotiated, no rivals, and that's the way you move into life. And he's, he doesn't exhaustively list every possibility, but he does comprehensively. How does he do it? Stop and think about it. He says, unless a man hates his what? His father, his mother, his brothers, his sisters, his children, all blood relationships. And his wife, a chosen covenant relationship. And himself, a natural love. You know you were born. And you not only are born to love God, but you're born to love all who are made in the image of God. Guess who's made in the image of God? You. So you're supposed to love yourself. Remember the second commandment? With the first, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your what? Neighbor as yourself. There is. Now, we, because of our sin nature, pervert that love of self into idolatry. But it's natural. No man ever hates his own flesh, but cherishes it. It's natural to love yourself. But to love yourself rightly, you've got to first hate yourself, go to Christ, and now Christ teaches you how to love yourself so that whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God. That's what he's telling us. This is a radical, non-negotiated commitment that you are making when you come to Christ to follow him. And so when he lays this out before us, it isn't exhaustive on all the possibilities, but it's comprehensive. Blood relationships, choice covenantal contract relationships, and also the natural relationships of life. And then he says, I got another term. Here's the other term. If you if anyone does not bear his own cross, he cannot. He cannot follow me. He cannot be my disciple. Now, you got to go back to the first century. We're in Rome. When they wanted to make it, when they wanted to put somebody to death, they made a statement. And the Romans had come up with a way to put slaves, criminals and aliens to death. It was so horrible, a Roman citizen would never have to worry about getting it. It was a deterrence and it was torture. It's called the cross death. So when you think of cross, don't think of the nice silver thing that hangs around the neck or the think of somebody placarded against it. Excruciating pain. Three, four, five days. Trying to get every breath. Before they die, the vultures have already plucked their eyes out. Picked at their skin. It is a horrible death. Jesus says, if you won't bear your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. When Satan and the world comes to put you to death, you say, hold it. I've already died. We are sheep counted to be slaughtered. I have died to self and live in Christ. And don't worry, I brought, my I brought my cross. I'll die on it. Now, you don't have to bear my cross. I don't have to bear your cross. I should help you bear your cross. 
But what we're called to do is to bear our own. Notice the emphasis, our own cross, whatever it is God's called us to do in a world that will see to it that you suffer. It may be your livelihood. It may be your life. It may be martyrdom. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is in this broken world that comes against you, he says, you've already brought the cross, the instrument of death, and you've already died to yourself. And if you haven't done that, then you cannot be my disciple because my disciples will die daily. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So he gives these two terms and he makes it abundantly clear. If anyone. Does that include old people? Does that include young people? Rich people? Poor people? Preachers? Well, y'all said that quick. Anyone who would come after Christ. You first... Set aside all relationships, natural, blood, chosen. You set aside all relationships of everyone. You come with no modifications. You come to Christ an unadulterated, unmitigated, unnegotiated, non-negotiated relationship to him. Now, is he going to leave, teach you, send you back to love your husband, love your... Yeah, but it's going to be totally different because it's him at work in you now. And you removed everything that would stop. And then when it costs you, you just say, already dead, here's my cross. I do not fear those that can kill the body. My soul is his. I've been bought with a price. So it's time to glorify God in that body. All right, let me do the rest of this quickly because I've only got a few minutes left. So here, then he gives two clarifying questions. I love those clarifying questions. Would you go? Well, I won't read them again. I've already read them. But for the sake of time, I'll just refer to them instead of reading them. So he he gives two clarifying questions, one built from the profession of of construction and the other built from from royalty. So he says, let's say you're a builder and you got a project. You're going to build a tower and you just go out and start it. But once, but then for long you find out, I don't have enough bricks, I don't have enough mortar, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough workers, I don't have anything. So what should you have done? Before you ever, in fact, you know, when I was studying this, I was thinking, because I actually know in this church, a bunch of us, a, a bunch of us, it ain't me, a bunch of y'all, now this is actually your job, construction companies to hire you to make sure that you get the budget right, that's going to get bring the tower in on time with everything that's there. And if you don't, then you're not going to have a job. Because that construction uh, owner does not want people walking by his side laughing at him and mocking at him because he did something he hadn't counted the cost for and he never got it finished. And then he says, what about a king? King finds out there's somebody coming against him. He doesn't just march out to war. The first thing he finds out, well, how many troops do they have? How many troops do I have? What's their heavy artillery? What's my artillery? What's their chariots? How many chariots do I have? Do they have cavalry? How much cavalry do I have? And if he doesn't match up, he'll send a delegation and get peace. What's going to be the cost of this war? Well, brothers and sisters, that's the way it is that Jesus did. This is why he stopped. Here come these multitudes. We think what Jesus ought to do is keep making it easier. Because you've got to get the numbers. But Jesus is going to speak the truth. 
He said, it's going to cost you to follow me. And that's why I'm telling you, I'm not going to be like that king. And I'm not going to be like that builder. And I'm going to give you the cost. I paid the cost for your salvation. Now, when you come to me, there'll be a cost to follow me. It's called the costly discipleship. That's what will happen in your life. And then he ends up with a summation. He brings a focused summation. Go with me to the last, the last uh, verse that I read. And so he gets to uh, chapter uh, 14. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. I met the wrong book. I'm still back in John. Hold on. Go to Luke 14 with me. And look what he says in that closing verse uh, that I read just a while ago. He says this. So, therefore, any one of you, here's that third time, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renounce all that. Now you get what he's saying. Every relationship, everyone, everything, anything that would beckon for your affection, your allegiance, your adoration, you renounce it. Now, that's an interesting word. I wish I had time to take you to five passages of Scripture. I don't. Can I give you just the fruit of it? You go check me out. I'll give you the verses. Renounce literally means this. Bid goodbye. That's what it means. Say goodbye. Bid farewell. You bid, when you come to Christ, you bid farewell to everything, everyone. That would have or does have claims if you're going to follow Jesus. If you don't, you cannot be his disciples. So you renounce all of it. You bid farewell. You let it go in order to follow him. So where does that leave us? Let me give you the takeaway and then we'll close in prayer. Here's the takeaway. Salvation is free. Praise God. But discipleship costs. That's why we sing, nothing in my hands I bring. I bring nothing to pay for my salvation. Jesus paid it all. But nothing in my hands I bring also means I don't come negotiating my following of Christ. We come surrendered. I love that hymn. That, uh, what's his name? Uh, I think it's John, John Ray Vandervent wrote, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. To follow Christ is to obey Christ. Who obeys Christ? You want to take a guess? Who obeys God? I'm not trying to trick you. Bruce does that all the time. He tries to trick you, but I don't. I'm, I'm just a great guy. Uh, who, when you, who obeys Jesus? Those who love Him. Those who love Him. So, to to follow Jesus is to obey Jesus. To obey Christ. So, if you're going to be a disciple, that's obedience. To follow Christ is to obey Christ. To obey Christ is to love Christ. To love Christ is to have no rivals for our allegiance, our affection, 
and our adoration. Now, will, are things going to be uncovered? Yes. But when you come to Christ, you don't come negotiated. You don't come, you don't come with an adulterated relationship, with a mitigated relationship, with a modified relationship. You come, nothing in my hands I bring. You are now my life. I've come to give to you. Every one, all of my relationships, I have now left them to come to you. I know you, when you're discipling me, will send me back to them different. And they're going to be blessed because no longer will I be sent to manipulate them for myself. Now I'll be sent to encourage them and bless them because I don't need them. I've got you and now you can use me in them. Everyone, everything, seek first his kingdom and let him add the things to you. So you leave everyone, you leave everything. There's not a thing that I bring to amalgamate, to modify and predicate my relationship. I don't come nuanced to you. I don't come for a reformation. I come for a transformation. And I don't bring everything. Folks, I've had a guy tell one time say to me, well, the preacher preached and he told me my house was, and he said I was guilty of having a house too big. And he said, can you help me? I, I need to, can you? I said, well, I, let me start this. You got a pastor. I'm not your pastor, so I'm not going to interfere. But here's what I think you need to ask your pastor. Ask your pastor, since he has said that basically your house is too big and you're guilty, go ask him what's the square footage that is holy. And I said, I'm not trying to be smart. Folks, I don't care how big or small your house is. What I'm concerned about, does it have you? Not what you have, but does it have you? How'd you get it? What are you doing with it? I've met people with small houses that have idols. I've met people with big houses that have idols. I've met people with small houses that use them gloriously. I've met people with big houses that use them continuously. The question is, is who has you? Do you have Jesus because you want a big house? Or did you give all that to him and now it's his? It's not yours, it's his. That's why it says in Acts 2, because none of them considered their property their own. It belonged to the Lord. I don't know, I mean, I don't know how many zeros are in your bank account. I just want to make sure... No matter how many or how little it is, it doesn't have you. And how'd you get it in there? And by the way, God's given you, God's given you some things to help you. The other day I went to the doctor. I went in and they said, we're going to check your vitals. I said, well, I hope I have some. And they, and so she started. Now, what does that normally mean? Thermometer. And this was a new one for me. She came with this thing and I opened my mouth. She said, oh no. She stuck it in my ear. How do you get a thermometer in the ear? I do not know. But that's where I said, I hope you're not sharing that with somebody else later. But uh, so I, and so she said, well, your temperature is this. Your blood pressure is this. Listen, God's given you those. Let me, let me just, you want to know who has you? Does Jesus have you or not? Let me ask you something. Does he have the Lord's day? If he didn't have the Lord's day, he didn't have the other six days. There's a good little barometer for you. Let me ask you, does he have your tithe or his tithe? <laughs> if he didn't have the tithe, he doesn't have it. You haven't left everything. He's given you those helps. 
He's given you those indicators. He's given you those barometers. I mean, Lord's Day, tithe, worship. Is worship, the gathered worship, the most important thing in your life or just something you kind of accommodate if something more important hasn't pushed it out of the schedule? Listen, we don't live for God's glory if we can't gather for God's glory. Now, folks, I'm just trying to be honest. If I'm not being faithful to this text, then please come tell me. And I, by the way, I understand providential hindrances. What I'm asking you for is what has you? What has me? What has hold of me? Do I have a modified, negotiated relationship with Christ? Or have I left all to follow him? And where I haven't left it, he'll show it to me. Because if you don't find it, I'll tell you, Satan will. Believe me, Satan has a reconnaissance team. Satan has probes. He eventually will find out what or who in your life is more important than Jesus. And he'll find the cost that you're not willing to pay. And then we become a mockery. And then we retreat from the battlefield. He, he will find out. He will probe and find out who is more important to you than Jesus. What is more important to you than Jesus? He will constantly do that. Brothers and sisters, when you come to Christ, you come for discipleship. And I picture it like a funnel. The, the top of the funnel is glorious. It's a commitment to Christ. It's Lord's Day worship. It's preaching. It's prayer. It's worship. It's uh, the sacraments. It's all of these wonderful things. And then the funnel starts moving down. And now not only the large group, but now the funnel moves down in the word of God and prayer with each other into uh, into the 70 and then to the 12 and into the three. We never get down here because we won't even be consistent up there because we've got other things that are more important to us than him. It may be football, it may be a job, it may be marriage, it may be a spouse, but something has as a negotiated dynamic in our life. And as long as it's there, you cannot and you will not be a disciple. It just won't be there. Salvation is free. But discipleship costs you everything. Our Lord gave you a little, another little indicator. You remember when Jesus taught this very same thing? And three guys said to him, oh, I'm going to follow you. You know what came out of their mouth next? But first. Everything that they said they wanted to go do was nothing wrong with that. What was wrong was that was first before Jesus. I'll never forget when Cindy and I pulled up. <laughs> Everything we owned was in a six by 12 trailer. I'm riding up Lookout Mountain. I start class the next day. I got a wife pregnant, a dog that eats the world, no job and no place to live and $75. If my kids did that, I'd kill them. I pulled in. By the end of the day, I had two jobs, place to live, started classes the next day. Three years later, finished with no debt. Why did I go there? 
Because I went there to find out that I could learn something about that in all things Christ might have preeminence. And I knew that wasn't true in my life, but I wanted it to be true. And I heard the chapel and the choir and the glorious hymn that declared the preeminence of Christ. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransom powers, all my days and all my hours. I believe with all my heart is that non-negotiated relationship. Praise God that salvation is free, but it's the gift that cost you everything. It cost you your sin, yourself. But now, instead of coming to Jesus with your possessions, he is your possession and he's enough. And now your possessions are all his. Now your relationships are all his. He's enough. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. No man can serve two masters. We got an elder in this church. I love him dearly. He has an aunt who's almost like a sister. Now, folks, country church, country aunt, and everything you think about country was true. Eighty years old, maybe 80 plus. She went to Jesus. She wrote a poem. And he had her read it. He gave it to me to read, and I said, can I borrow it? I've got use for this next Sunday. Do you want your last day to be joyful? Then make this day all his, all you are, and all you have. He is preeminent in all things. Here's what she wrote. In fact, I would give anything to have the ability to put this to music. What a precious poet warrior, this dear older country lady. Don't grieve for me, for now I'm free. I'm following the path that God has laid for me. I took his hand when I heard him call. I turned my back to him and left it all. I could not stay another day to laugh, to work, to I could not stay another day to laugh, to love, to work or play. Task left and done, well, they'll just have to stay that way. I found that place at the close of day. If my parting has left a void, then fill it with remembered joy. A friendship shared, a laugh, a kiss, ah, these things too I will miss. Isn't that great? Do you see the picture? She left all to come to Jesus. Now look at all the relationships she enjoyed because it was all Jesus. That's that's just wonderful. Be not burdened with times of sorrow. I wish you the sunshine of tomorrow. My life's been full. I savored much. Good friends, good times, a loved one's touch. Perhaps my life seemed all too brief. But don't lengthen it now with undue grief. Lift up your heart and share with me. God wants me now. He set me free. Now she's free. 
Because the day he called her, she left everything for him. Let's pray. Will you follow Jesus? Will you surrender all? Will you give him it all? All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. You take me, Jesus. Take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. May thy Holy Spirit fill me. May I know thy power divine. All to Jesus. Here it is. I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Come and follow him. Unhindered. Unentangled. He is enough. He is your life. He's not at the top of the list of your life. He is your life. And will make the list for your life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.